We have started a series uh, on the theme of being human and looking at different aspects of what it means to be human. And uh, after an introductory section, we started just over a week ago with the theme of being human and being insecure. Well, this morning, the theme that I want to take is about being human and being proud. Being human means dealing with pride in one form or another. Sometimes there are quite good connotations with the idea of pride. There was a a logo that was used by tradesmen called Pride in the Job, which was a little symbol that said, this tradesman cares about the work that he does. That seems a very good use of it. There are many friends and family around the country over these last few days who will have great pride in other family members because of the honours that have been bestowed upon them. Sometimes pride enables us to do the right thing. It encourages us to do something of merit, something all the better than we would have before. But often the association is bad and even good associations can so easily be corrupted. Those worthy achievements on our own part can go to our heads and pride in the job becomes arrogance. The association with others we appreciate provides the opportunity of turning into name droppers, graspers for significance, riding on the backs of others and using others. The healthy ambition To do do better because doing a good job matters can become a harsh perfectionism that is critical and impatient of the efforts of others. Pride can so easily be associated with arrogance that rides roughshod over other people. Pride can be associated with foolish independence, which can be painful to watch. Pride can be associated with hatred. Racism, ultimately killing. Pride can destroy relationships, as Proverbs 13.10 says, pride breeds quarrels. Pride can be the cause of dishonesty, where we would rather lie than lose face. Pride can be the means of harming others, so proud of our heritage that it becomes a cover for sectarianism, or as we are now discovering, racism And at its worst, violence and war. You see, the truth is, on the one hand, we can say about someone, they should be very proud of what they have achieved, and mean that, and mean it well. On the other hand, we can say of someone, they are so proud, and so hard to live with. Being human means addressing the issue of pride. And the Bible deals with this issue, and actually has quite a lot to say about it. Let me begin by quickly taking you through a few passages in the Old Testament where there are strong things to be said about pride and proud people. The psalmist, often dealing with the struggles in life, says, The Lord preserves the faithful, but the proud he pays back in full. Psalm 31, 23. In Psalm 101, verse 5, it says, Whoever has haughty eyes and a proud heart, him I will not endure. When the psalmist is preparing his heart to approach God in worship, 
In Psalm 131, he says, My heart is not proud, O Lord. My eyes are not haughty. I have stilled and quieted my soul. Because pride is a real barrier in our approach to God and life before God. The book of Proverbs uses some fairly strong language to state that, for example, in chapter 3, verse 34, God mocks the proud mockers, but gives grace to the humble. In chapter 6, in verses 16 to 17, the beginning of the passage that's often referred to as the identification of the seven deadly sins, there are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are detestable to him, and top of the list, haughty eyes, that euphemistic way of speaking about pride. Wisdom, speaking in Proverbs 8, verse 13, says, I hate pride and arrogance, evil behavior, and perverse speech. In chapter 16, in verses 5 and 19, it says, The Lord detests all the proud of heart. So it is better to be lowly in spirit among the oppressed than to share the plunder with the proud. Pride would appear to be something about which God has strong views. Little wonder that Isaiah has the following prophecy in chapter 2, verses 10 to 18. You might like to turn to it. And reads with me something of the prophecy that is marked here. The prophet is speaking to his own people. He's delivering the message of God. And part of that message addresses the arrogance, the proud arrogance of God's people. Isaiah chapter 2 verse 10. It's on page 687 of the copies of the Bible that are in the pew. Go into the rocks, hide in the ground from the dread of the Lord and the splendor of his majesty. The eyes of the arrogant man will be humbled and the pride of men brought low. The Lord alone will be exalted in that day. The Lord Almighty has a day in store for all the proud and lofty, for all that is exalted, and they will be humbled. For all the cedars of Lebanon, tall and lofty, and all the oaks of Bashan, for all the towering mountains and all the high hills, for every lofty tower and every fortified wall, for every trading ship and every stately vessel, the arrogance of man will be brought low and the pride of men humbled. The Lord alone will be exalted in that day and the idols will totally disappear. This theme of God's abhorrence of pride, his inability his unwillingness to overlook it is developed also in the New Testament with Paul's very simple command in Romans 12 verse 16 where he says to the church there, do not be conceited, do not be proud. And both James and Peter quote that Proverbs in Proverbs 3.34 and they remind us that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. If you want to get on the wrong side of God, be proud. If the reaction to pride in the Bible seems a little bit over the top, I mean, after all, there are other dreadful things in the world. Dreadful immorality, child abuse, evil dictatorships. Well, then we need to understand the reason why God takes pride so seriously. And the reason for God's abhorrence of pride is set out for us in Scripture. I might like to turn just a few pages over from the Isaiah passage to Ezekiel chapter 28. 
Ezekiel chapter 28, which is on page 858. Because this passage gives us an interesting summary of why it is that pride is such an issue as far as God is concerned and why it needs to be such an issue for us in the way in which we live. Now let me explain a bit of the context to this. Ezekiel is prophesying against the king of Tyre. You'll see that from verse 1 and 2. The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, say to the ruler of Tyre, this is what the sovereign Lord says. So it's a very specific message directed to a very specific man at a very specific time. So that's part of the context of it. (coughs) However, in delivering this message, the prophet is going to use a reference back beyond just the king of Tyre to illustrate the nature of the problem with pride. And pride is the issue. Look at what it says in verse 2. In the pride of your heart you say, I am a God. I sit on the throne of a God in the heart of the seas. But you are a man and not a God. Though you think you are as wise as a God. This king is terribly conceited. He actually believes himself to be quite invincible politically, militarily, economically and all the rest of it. And the message from the prophet Ezekiel is that God observes this kind of arrogance and pride and abuse of power which comes with it. And God is going to take him down a peg or two. He says in verse 4, By your wisdom and understanding you have gained wealth for yourself and amassed gold and silver in your treasures. By your great skill and trading you have increased your wealth and because of your wealth your heart has grown proud. Because you think you are wise, as wise as a God, I am going to bring foreigners against you. This, this pride has to be broken. And it has to be broken in every nation. And it has to be broken in every power and authority that loses its perspective. And the king of Tyre is an illustration of this. But the part of the passage that I want um, to get on to here comes really from verse 11. Because what follows from verse 11 is a lament. A lament is like an oration that would be given at the funeral of some great statesman or somebody who was particularly important or significant. It would be a fairly common thing. Uh, We would refer to it as an oration today, but in in ancient times, and still in some parts of the world, it would be seen as a lament, like David lamenting the death of Saul and Jonathan, which you can read about uh, in the Old Testament. And the prophets sometimes used this. They sometimes used this idea of a lament to communicate that it is as if you're as good as dead because God has spoken. It brings the word that God speaks about what will happen in the future right into the present and says it's as good as happened right now. So the prophet makes and sings a lament. The word of the Lord came to me, verse 11, Son of man, take up a lament concerning the king of Tyre and say to him, this is what the sovereign Lord says. And what the prophet does here is very interesting. He likens the king of Tyre to someone other than himself and sings a lament about the effects of pride. Listen to it as we read it. You were the model of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone adorned you. Ruby, topaz and emerald, crystallite, onyx and jasper, sapphire, turquoise, beryl. Your settings and mountings were made of gold. On the day you were created, they were prepared. You were anointed as a guardian cherub, for so I ordained you. You were on the holy mount of God. You walked among the fiery stones. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till wickedness was found in you. 
Through your widespread trade you were filled with violence and you sinned. So I drove you in disgrace from the mount of God. I expelled you, O guardian cherub, from among the fiery stones. Your heart became proud on account of your beauty. And you corrupted your wisdom because of your splendor. So I threw you to the earth. I made a spectacle of you before kings. By your many sins and dishonest trade you have desecrated your sanctuaries. So I made a fire come out from you and it consumed you. And I reduced you to ashes on the ground in the sight of all who were watching. All the nations who knew you or appalled at you. You have come to a horrible end. And will be no more. And the word of God through the prophet as it is spoken about the king of Tyre. And the judgment that is coming on him. Is spoken in terms as if it actually had happened right now. In fact it has happened in the past tense. And the kind of language that he weaves into what it is he is saying is the kind of language that takes us right back to Eden, right back to Genesis. The kind of language that reminds us of what we were as human beings, created in beauty and truthfulness, without sin, without wickedness, but becoming pride, and in our pride, falling, rebelling against God. Some people think that the reference here back is a reference to Satan himself. I think it's probably more a reference playing back with Adam and the beauty of his creation, who he was, and the way in which, out of his pride, sin enters and he is thrown to the earth outside of the garden. (laughs) The message is that God is going to take the king of Tyre down a peg or two. The lament is a way of speaking about how certain it is and takes us right back to Eden takes us right back to recognize that what it was at the heart of what produces sinful behavior, what it lies at the heart of disobedience is the grasping pride that is not content to simply be made in the image of God or to be sustained by the goodness in the hand of God, but wants to be God. Wants to be as good as God, as big as God, as knowledgeable as God, to be God. And that's what lies at the heart of what happened in the Garden of Eden. Do you remember one of the striking statements made about Adam and Eve when they had defied God? In Genesis 3 verse 7 it says, The eyes of them both were opened and they realized that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made covering for themselves. And it sounds, when you first read it, almost a bit random. What exactly has that got to do with it? Has being naked... Uh, suddenly become sinful when it wasn't before. But at the heart of rebellion against God and, and giving credence to the temptation that is brought by the evil one and going against God's command is this grasping of pride, this grasping of believing that I'm just as good as God and determined to be so. It's not enough to be in his image. Pride says, I am as good as God or even I am God. And the consequence of this pride introduces the concept of shame. Because shame does not exist without pride. And they are ashamed of their nakedness before God. In Genesis 11, we have the account of the Tower of Babel. The people set out to build a stairway to heaven. Which is literally what these kinds of constructions in the ancient world were intended to be. Some of the, uh, the, the bases of some of them still remain to this day. And they've been found by archaeologists. And Babel, from which we get the Hebrew word for Babylon and the English word Babel. Babel was an Akkadian term, which means 
gateway to a God. And the people believed they would build the stairway to heaven. Because they were good enough. They were as God. And God scatters the people and confuses their language. And pride is at the heart of what happens in Genesis chapter 11. So whether it's set back in Eden, as Ezekiel does in his lament, or whether it's at Babel, what we see is that rather than live as those created in the image of God to share his glory in the context of fellowship with him, pride grasps at the glory for ourselves and lies at the heart of so much of human pain, misery and suffering even today. Pride tells us it's not enough to be made in the image of God. Pride allows us to believe that we ourselves can become gods. It's not enough for us to know that God has made complete provision for us. Pride tells us we must be grasping and greeting. It's not enough to know that we come from the dust and rely on the creator for our breath and being. Pride cannot cope with dependence. It requires autonomy and independence. The fruit of pride is rebellion, idolatry and pain. God hates it. He hates what it has done to his creation. He hates what it has done to our relationship with him. And he hates what it does to our relationships with each other. Do you recognize any of this in your own life? I think pride is a very difficult thing to identify in our own lives. Because we associate pride with nasty arrogance people who blatantly just walk all over the top of you, we very often fail to see its insidious nature and work in us who don't particularly consider ourselves to be proud, if that's not a proud statement. Does pride manifest itself in your life or my life by the way in which we put others down? What does my view of myself Say how I view other people or justify how I treat other people. Does pride manifest itself in my life by putting myself forward? What is there in my behaviour and attitude that betrays the need to be at the front of the queue? Does pride manifest itself in my life by doing others an injustice? Because when you think other people aren't as good as you, it allows you to justify being dismissive or arrogant or indifferent, despite God's command to love my neighbour as myself. Does pride manifest itself in my life by keeping others out? Has it developed in us an unhealthy self-sufficiency? A pride that can't admit defeat, that does ourselves and others harm. Does pride manifest itself in my life by keeping God out? Indeed, my concept of God becomes redundant because I am my own God. My belief in human self-sufficiency and human ability is such that God is no longer necessary. To my life. In Bible terms, that is quite simply idolatry. 
If the Ezekiel passage was a beautiful rendering of an ugly subject, which it is, as a lament, it is just beautifully constructed. Then let me take you to another beautiful passage, which speaks of a very beautiful happening. The passage is Philippians chapter 2. And it stands in very significant contrast to what we read in Ezekiel chapter 28. You'll find it on page 1179 of the church edition of the, the Bibles. And as we come to read this passage, there are some things I want you to notice in it. Philippians 2 is not about glory being squandered by pride. It's about glory being humbly set aside. Philippians 2 is not about descending into rebellion and judgment as a consequence of pride. It's about the humility to descend voluntarily into death as a sacrifice. Philippians 2 is not about being made a spectacle before the kings of the earth as the king of Tyre was going to be. It's about one being made king of kings before whom every knee will bow as the consequence of humility. Let's read the passage. Verse 5 says, Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing. Taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. And became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place. And gave him the name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. To the glory of God the Father. Everything that is seen in our sinful pride in Eden and its descent into rebellion and judgment is answered in Jesus Christ who sets aside his glory to descend to the place of judgment for us rebels. Here is the antidote to the poison of pride. Here is humility modelled for us, working for us, worked out to the limit. In verse 3 of Philippians 2, Paul calls us to set aside selfish ambition and vain conceit and in humility consider others better than ourselves. Each of us should look not only to our own interests but also to the interests of others. Our attitude should be the same as Jesus. Jesus, by whom and through whom everything was made, who was in the beginning with God and was God, but didn't grasp after equality. Adam and Eve did. I do. You do. In some way or another. But Jesus didn't. Jesus, the creative and sustaining word of God, becomes nothing, becomes a servant, appears like sinners. We don't. We want to be something, usually something other than we truly are. We're discontented 
We become jealous. We become envious. We become proud. But Jesus wasn't. Jesus, the sinless Lamb of God, the author of life, comes and faces death, even death on a cross of shame. We couldn't. And we wouldn't. Oh, we'll all die, okay. That bit we can do. But not sacrificially. Not innocently. Not in place of others. We'll die as part of the consequence of our common human sinfulness. But Jesus didn't. He had the humility to come and to die in our place. And so now, Jesus is exalted, glorified, and will receive the praise of all. Oh, we'd like it. We'd like to grasp it. We'd like the recognition and the adulation. We'd like to always be at the center of attention, but we won't be. Like dead kings and queens and prime ministers, we won't be. The only glory beyond this life is to bask in the reflected glory of the exalted risen Christ. Ezekiel tells of a descent from glory to shame. Philippians tells of a descent from glory to rescue the shameful. Ezekiel tells of the human becoming less than they were intended to be. Philippians tells of the pathway to becoming truly human and shows us the nature of what it means to be truly human in Christ. And so I'd want to suggest to you that observing the pattern of Philippians 2 gives us a template for addressing and dealing with pride in our lives. So let me leave this with you. First of all, don't grasp after glory. It will leave you as an empty shell. Secondly, be willing to be nothing in the eyes of others. Because you are everything in the eyes of God, in whose image you were made, and for whom Christ died. Thirdly, be willing to serve others as Christ served us. Avoid a lifetime of self-centeredness. It will destroy your soul. It will harden your heart. Fourthly, be willing to own the shame that is ours, for which Jesus went to the cross. It will give us a healthy fear of God, of both his justice and his grace. And finally, let our boast be in the Lord. When Paul is writing to the Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, he says this from verse 28. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, holiness and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let him who boasts boast 
in the Lord. Being human means dealing with being proud. Dealing with pride will not make you less of a person. It will enable you to become more truly human in Christ. Let's take a minute just to reflect on this theme and its implication for our own lives. For each of us, we'll have to hear this in slightly different ways and reflect on it. Lord, help us to get into our heads the recognition, the knowledge that there is nothing hidden from you. Nothing about us you do not see. May that instill in us a healthy fear of your justice. And teach us to love our neighbour as ourselves. And may it instill in us a great sense of comfort. That knowing us as completely as you do, your love is set upon us so completely in Christ. To this end we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This song, Meekness and Majesty, Manhood and Deity and Perfect Harmony, the man who is God, seems a terribly appropriate one to use to bring our time together this morning to a close. Meekness and Majesty. Let's stand as we sing this together. Mm -hmm.